now bring you the Making Much of Jesus podcast featuring the late Dr. Jack Hudson, the founding pastor of the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now today's edition of the Making Much of Jesus podcast. Let's turn now, if you will, to the book of the Revelation, chapter number 21. Let's find out about the place where we're going to spend eternity. Let's find out about our heavenly home. What is it really going to be like? Now, while you're finding your place, I, I believe this from the bottom of my heart. Psychiatrists and psychologists tell us that if you want to know what a person thinks about God, you never ask them that question directly because they, people have a tendency to tell you what they feel you want to know. They want to please you, and so they'll tell you something you can't believe. But if you want to find out what a person thinks about God, ask them what they think about their own father. And what they tell you about their own father is about the truest description you'll ever get of what they think about God. I remember preaching years ago in the old church, and I preached one Sunday morning on God being our heavenly father, and being like a father. With the scripture says, like as a father pitieth his children. And when it was over, a little bus girl came by when I say bus, a little girl who'd ridden the bus to church that morning, I guess maybe 10 years old, and she came by and she stopped and just looked up in my eyes and kind of shivered, and she said, I hope God's not like my daddy, and she turned and walked away. Well, I knew then in my own mind the concept she must have had of God. Well, it's the same way about heaven. Now, I believe this. I've never heard a psychiatrist say this, but I believe this from the bottom of my heart. If I could get you to sit down, I mean absolutely relaxed, without trying to please anybody, and you'd tell me, that is, maybe tell into a tape recorder, what you thought about heaven. I believe it would reveal, it would be a reflection of your deepest desires. I'm not saying that in any sense that would be bad or any sense that would judge you. I'm just simply saying that to many people, heaven is just a reflection of our desires. But heaven isn't that way at all. That's why we need to know the Word of God. I imagine we could take the vast crowd that's here and we could ask each one of you to write down, what do you think heaven would be like? I doubt if many of them would be the same. Because heaven, to many of us, is what our desires reflect, what our hopes anticipate and so on. But let's read the book of the Revelation. Now, and we're getting at a hand, this first-hand description. In Revelation chapter 21, verse number 9, there came unto me, that is, this is John now, the beloved, came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and to a high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, the ascending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as a crystal and had a great wall, great wall and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked to me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the walls thereof and the city lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth 
and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, and the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. That is, it's a cube. Now, roughly, that's the, the, the furlongs is given here is roughly 1,500 miles. And he measured the wall thereof 140 and four cubics, 216 feet, according to the measures of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundation of the city uh, and the walls of the city were garnished with all manners of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third a chaldeson, and the fourth an emerald. Skip verse number 20. To be honest with you, those names are difficult to pronounce, and you probably wouldn't understand them any better than I, other than their precious stone. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it was transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of the God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd help us to understand about that city. Give us biblical proof. Give us biblical reason, a biblical description that our minds might be spiritual, our minds might be matured. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I said at the beginning, that which a man fancies in his heart about whatever life after death is, I think can reveal his maturity as a Christian. As you know, in reading your history books, for example, the ancient uh, mariner, that is, the man who sailed the uncharted seas many hundreds of years ago, and they, in their poetry and in their songs, we pick up the thought. To them, something after life was a place where there was a safe harbor, where there'd be no more storms, where never again would they see the mask of their ship broken down. And to the ancient mariner, he thought about a safe harbor. To the Egyptian, the days gone by, we read in their poetry and read in their history, and we read in their, the writings in their tombs. They were going to cross some mystical sea. There on the other side, they were going to take up living again, where there was no sin, no sickness. They even would pack, that is, in their graves. They'd take their wife's body and put them in the tomb so that they'd have them on the other side. They'd take their favorite horse or their favorite dog. They'd put seeds and plants so that when they crossed that mystical sea, they'd have all those things to begin life over. So I already know that in the mind of the ancient mariner, to him, heaven was a place where there were no more storms. To the Egyptian, it was a place where across some mystical sea, where they could resume life forevermore. Then to the Greek who enjoyed fighting, it was a matter of on the other side of death, if they were killed in battle or whatever. There was no God to serve. There was nothing they had to do to repent of their sin. It was just when they died. In essence, they believed there was a place where there were wine, women, and song, and where they'd never tire of fighting and where they'd never fire of their reveling. They just thought it was a place where they could revel for all eternity. Read the poetry and the stories and the songs of the American Indian. 
And we read him as he says, as he'd sit there with his old faded eyes, he'd look out across the desert and he said, somewhere there's a happy hunting ground. Somewhere there's a place where the buffalo roam. That to me, he would say, is what happens life after death. The old prospector out on the desert by himself, we know what he thought. Even in song, he said, there's a gold mine in the sky. He was looking for that mystical gold mine in the sky. Then we read about the cowboys as they would uh, tend their, uh, their cows out on the prairies and the, out on the grasslands or wherever they may be at night. And they'd sing, I'm headed for the last roundup. Then you think about the carnal Christian, the age in which we live. Many carnal Christians saved by the grace of God. But they feel that heaven is nothing more than celestial, celestial real estate. A place where they're going, a place of reward, a place of a utopia, kind of reward like you work hard all year and you get a vacation and you get to go to some resort area. And they think now if, if we're saved and if we work hard when we die, we'll get to go to some resort area. Oh, it's a place called heaven and it's got golden streets and pearly gates and it's got all that, but it's a resort. It's going to be a place a celestial real estate is a place that, that I've got a little interest in, and I'm going there, but that's about as far as they go. Then to the mind of the unsaved man, it's a place of rest. How many times only God knows have I either stood at the bedside or been in the house a little while after death or maybe at the funeral. Some man that never one time made any profession of faith, never acknowledged God as his Savior, never realized that he needed help beyond that which he could do himself. I've seen people say, almost without exception, they say, I'm so glad he's at rest. Oh, he had suffered so long, I'm so glad he's at rest. And to the unsaved man, to die just simply means there's a place of rest. There's a place of rest, but not for the unsaved man. And at last, I believe the matured Christian, I believe that the reflection and the longing in his heart is not for any of the things that I've mentioned, though it may include all of them. I believe it's a place where your character, that is your moral and spiritual character, is absolutely unspotted by the taint of sin. But, beloved, the Word of God is very plain, very explicit upon it. And we need to zero in on what does God say about it. Then let our hope begin to work from there because then we'll not be disappointed. You see, first of all, when you think about it, heaven in the Word of God is likened unto a garden. You see, when God created man... The first place he put him was in a garden. In the Bible, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, and God created Adam. And the Bible says, and God placed him in a garden. Again, the word of God says again in the first chapter, it says that he placed him in the garden in Eden. There was a nation, there was a country, there was a place called Eden. And God had a garden. But a garden it was, I don't think our human minds can comprehend. You know, some time ago, two years ago now, I had the privilege of being in Africa. I'll never forget it as long as I live, the experiences that I had there. I went down and I was in a little place called Yucapa, up in Nimba County. And I went over to and I saw it was kind of like a little trading place where people came together and sold things. And they had some primitive art, as you and I would call it. That is, some, some natives who had never obviously had any schooling, had never been taught about artwork or whatever, and they had drawn, obviously with colors and so on, they had drawn some pictures. Obviously, they were of Africa. That's all they'd ever seen. 
I got one of them. I brought it back. I had it framed. It's in my study now. I look at it often because it reminds me to pray for Africa. Now, I, I thought in my mind, I didn't see the artist. I don't know who made it. But no doubt, it was a man, a primitive artist, as we'd call it. The lines are very primitive, the, the scenery, but there's a certain kind of a, a, a well-primitive beauty in it. But now, supposing I'd walk up to that man and I'd say to him, Sir, did you paint this picture? Yes, sir, I did. Sir, have you ever heard about, of Rembrandt? No, he said, I've never heard of him. Have you ever heard of Michelangelo? Uh, no, no, I don't believe I know him either. What about Leonardo da Vinci? No, does he live around here somewhere? Sir, let me ask you a question. Who is the greatest artist you know? Maybe he'd lay down his paintbrush and he'd say, well, let's see. He'd say, this man over here on the other side of the city, he's probably the best one I know. Sir, in all the world, you feel he's the greatest artist you've ever met. Yes, sir. I, he, he's the best one. I, he draws the best pictures I've ever seen. Now, you see what I'm saying? Until he's been exposed to the old masters, until he's seen the greatest art in the world, to him, the greatest artist is the greatest artist he knows. Now, beloved, that's the way it is about these gardens. What if you and I would get together and we'd just begin to reminisce and say, tell me about the most beautiful garden you've ever seen. I've seen some beautiful gardens traveling over this world. I've seen the Japanese gardens. I, they, they usually tiny, miniature, and I don't know if anything fascinates me anymore to see a, a Japanese garden. They'll take a little yard, not as nearly as big as a, this platform, and they'll just have things in it that just fascinate you. The first thing you want to do is take a picture. I've seen, I've seen, I've flown over and been in Holland, and I've seen those tulips and how rich and abundant they are in color in the early springtime, and and I, I just, I go on in my mind. I've been in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been in many gardens in this world. But I'm simply trying to say, if I knew, if I actually knew the most beautiful garden that's ever been created on the face of this earth, I could simply say, almost to that primitive artist in Africa, that it's nothing compared to the garden that we're going to have in heaven. When you think about it, it's going to be a garden. You remember Solomon, the richest man who ever lived as well as the wisest? One of the things that he did that was good is he planted a garden. We read about it in the Song of Solomon. He'd happen to go down and get his chariot and those choice prime, the finest horses in the entire world he owned. And he'd hook those horses to a chariot, no doubt was plated in gold. And he'd take that chariot and he'd drive down and he'd see the trees on either side and, the, and the, the, the abundance of various things that were growing, the flowers and the shrubbery and the, all the various things that had been brought virtually from all over the world because price absolutely did not enter into it. But I'll tell you something, beloved. Heaven is a garden, but it's going to be a garden like no man has ever begun to think about in this life. Then I'll tell you something else according to the word of God is going to be like. Heaven is going to be likened unto a city. The Bible says the holy city. In Revelation chapter 21 that we didn't read, the Bible says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, adorned as a bride for her husband. I read to you here in the word of God, and it says, and it says, He showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. 
And so it's going to be likened unto. Now don't think it's just a city. Don't think it's just a garden. It's likened unto. He's trying to get us to understand it's going to be likened unto. It's going to be similar to a garden, but it's also going to be similar to, likened unto a city. He wants us to see that and understand it. Did you know when they build a metropolitan uh, uh, and the great builders of days gone by, and I remember reading in, histor in history books and the historical facts of the old city, there were three things that they tried to accomplish when they built a city, whether it was Athens or whether it was Rome or whether it was some of the great cities still standing today. These are three things they tried to accomplish. Number one, they tried to reflect the glory of its founder. The glory of its founder. Secondly, they tried to show the prosperity of its citizens. That was a mark of a good city. For its citizens to be prosperous. Number three, they wanted to show the safety of its citizens. As read so many of the ancient cities had huge walls. Goes all the way back to China. Call it the Great Wall of China. And these things are built to reflect the glory of the builder. The, 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 the abundance of wealth of its citizens and its safety. Beloved, while the Lord was not interested in following man's plans, I think that man in our fallen condition still remembered enough the things of God to maybe put these things into being, though he didn't acknowledge them as God, yet he had to sort. For the city of heaven is going to be just that. It's going to reflect the glory of its founder. It's going to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to show the prosperity of its citizens. Bless God, we shall be there. There is no poverty in heaven. There are no food stamps. There are no welfare agencies in heaven. Every one of its citizens shall be prosperous. He became poor that we through him might become rich. Then the safety of it. There's a wall around that city. It's not only great, but it's high. Not that it's needed for protection, but it's there to, to give you and me security. And there is the safety of its citizens. I want you to see something else. You see, a city is a place, a haven. I read a sociologist said this not long ago, and I wrote it down, never realizing I'd use it in this message, but let me read it to you. He said a city is a haven of, of a vast society, a haven of a vast society of kindred folk. That means people who like each other. And it's a, the, the common, they have a common interest, and they associate it together for the mutual welfare and the happiness of its citizens. To him, that's what the definition of a city was. We can apply that to heaven. You know, when you think of heaven, it's got gates, and the gates are of pearl. That means that God has given us the right to enter. The Bible says that he's the pearl of great price. He likens it to the gospel or to the word of God. He says, cast not the pearls before the swine. And so when the pearly gates are there, they indicate us that we have the right to enter. You know, my mind somehow stops in the middle, though I didn't plan to, and it goes back. Preacher came in to the church this week and he said, Look, I have found a book. I bet you'd like to read it. And I said, What is it? And I looked at it. The title of it was Rhapsody in Black. It was concerning 
John Jasper. I said, no, sir, I've read it, I guess, 12 times. I've got two copies. I'm afraid I'd lose one and not have it. I've got two copies of it. I've read it, I know, 12 times. John Jasper. I remember him saying, and I want to say this part of it. There's so much more with it. He said one day, and I'm using his words now. All of you listen. I'm using his words. He said one day, oh, John Jasper, why to die? He said one day, John Jasper going to stand before them big pearly gates, and that big angel going to come out here, and he's going to say, John, what right have you got to be here? He said, I'm going to bow my old black head. I'm going to say, I ain't got no right to be here. But Jesus done said, if I'd trust him, he'd let me in. He said, that big angel can't say nothing then. He gonna open them pearly gates. And old John Jasper gwine in. Oh, bless God. Those pearly gates, folk, mean we can go in. It means Jack Hudson can go in. Praise God. We can go in because the gates are pearl. Then listen, not only that, but the walls. They're talking about the redeeming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They talk about how he redeemed us with such terrible price, at such costly price, because it was his blood. It was his body that he gave on Calvary's cross. Beloved, when I see the walls, they remind me of the security that I've had from the day that I came to Jesus Christ until the day that I'm standing with him. Secure, secure, safe and secure. Praise God for the security. Then when I see the streets of gold, gold speaks of deity. I shall walk on that gold, and that gold shall remind me of the redemptive power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was deity that supplied to me my salvation. And it'll be underfoot. Everywhere I walk, I'll be walking on golden streets, and those golden streets will remind me of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was deity God manifested in the flesh, and he gave himself for me that I might through him have life everlasting. It says there's going to be trees there. And those trees shall bear every month. They'll bear 12 kinds of fruit. And they shall be for the healing of the nation. And oh, thank God, I think that he reminds me there that every good and every perfect gift cometh from the Lord. Then I want you to see not only is heaven likened unto a garden and heaven likened unto a city, but heaven is likened unto a household. Now hold on for a minute and think. You have to remember this primarily, though obviously it's to the Gentiles, this is primarily a Jewish book. Many of the illustrations here, you need to understand a little bit about the Hebrew people, that is the Jewish people, the Israelites, all of them are the same people. Whatever name you use, they're all the same people. And when God used illustrations, he used illustrations that they would understand that you and I can certainly understand as well. But when the Lord said in John 14, 1, one of our favorite scriptures, Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. You ever wonder why he said in my Father's house? I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if he's going to build it, why did he call it his Father's house? I believe that he said it's my Father's house so that the Jews would rightly say, oh, yes, we understand that. Because in those days when a young boy was growing up or a young girl, as the case may be, and they were heirs of the father, obviously. They may have had servants in the house. They were treated fairly and treated equally. But the servant, that I mean the son, had far more privileges and rights and so on than did the servants. The son was an heir. He was in his father's house. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ said, In my Father's house, in the household of my Father, you're going to be the heir, you're going to be the son, you're going to receive preferential treatment. You're the heir of God. You're not servants. You're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know, I think in my mind what the Word of God has to say. Let me just turn a minute. I'll not wait because I'm not going to stay there but a minute. But let me read uh, the book of Ephesians chapter number 2. And again, we pick it up. And the Lord is saying in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, uh, verse number 11, Wherefore, remember that in beings in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, but that which is called a circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that is, uh, you're Gentiles, and the Jews have called you uncircumcised, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And now in Jesus Christ you were who, who were sometimes far off or made nigh or brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Beloved, in the eastern countries even to this day, a stranger can come in. Why? He's treated royally. People walking down the street, they stop and talk to one another with a great time lapse sometimes. Why, the Lord said, greet no man by the way. They took too long sometimes to do it. But it was different. He said, I want you to know you're not going to be a stranger, though you'll be taken in and your feet washed, so to speak, and you'll be given food and you'll be given the best place in the house. You're not going to be a guest. You're going to be a son. You're going to be a part of the household of God. Brother, that means something to me, does it you? I'm not going to be a guest in heaven. I'm not going to be a stranger. I'm going to be a member of the household of God. And last and very quickly, I don't know what this is in the best. Heaven is likened unto a gift that a bridegroom would give his bride. Did you notice as I read there in the book of the Revelation, the Lord tells us that we are the bride. The whole church, male or female, we're the bride of Christ. I want you to turn in your Bible a minute to the book of Jude, just one chapter. First chapter of the book of Jude. That's page 1329 in your school for you Bible. Don't you turn there. I want to show you what I think is the best of all. I think if you understand this, it will increase your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is likened unto a garden. It's likened unto a city. It's likened unto a household. Then it's likened unto a bridegroom's gift unto the bride. Now notice, if you will, In Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now we read it so rapidly. It's such a short thing that many times we don't see the glory. I sometimes think a whole book ought to be written on that one verse. Now unto him who's able to present you and me faultless. I've never been faultless in my life. But, beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall present us, we shall be faultless. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 that we'll not have any spot or wrinkle. We've been washed in the Word. We've been washed in the blood and kept clean by the Word of God. 
And the Bible says then we shall be presented faultless, notice now, if you will, uh, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You know, because we're human and because we're selfish, I suppose, most of the times we think of heaven as being something for us. Oh, if I can just get there. Oh, what a time it's going to be in that beautiful city. When I get there and have that new and glorified body, when I'll be there without pain, and when I meet my loved ones, and all those things are true, but listen to me. Beloved, I want you to know there's something that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to receive. I believe that it's going to be even a greater blessing to him than it will be to us. I believe that. Get it in your mind. He's going to present us faultless in the glory of heaven. I believe that he'll say, every angel stand at attention. Every archangel and every seraphim, every created being in heaven, stand at attention. Here's my bride. And there we shall walk in. I'm so sorry that that song was made worthy. When the saints go marching in, and God's going to parade us in heaven where he is faultless, washed in the blood, no spot or no wrinkle to present you. I've given you this illustration before, but it comes to my mind back in England in, the, in its heyday and back in the days of aristocracy and perhaps even today still in some of its society, when they'd have a great gathering, great party or whatever, they'd hire or usually have on their staff a butler. And that butler would have a deep, resonant voice and and he'd practice, of course, and he'd get all the names, and, and uh, the people would, obviously, some of them would come late, so there'd be more people there when they made their entrance, and usually the living rooms were sunken a little, and the entrance hall was three or four steps higher so that people could see them. They'd come in dressed in all their eloquence and all their finery, and when they'd walk into the door, they'd whisper their names to the butler, Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. The butler then would walk over with his long claw hammer coat on with his long everything all fixed immaculate he'd stand there in that deep resonant voice and he'd say mr and mrs john smith and everybody'd look at him and they'd walk in now unto him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless that's what it means and we're going to stand there and I believe the Lord's going to say, And now, Walter Jack Hudson, sinner, saved by grace. Oh, I'm going to cut loose. Ooh, I'm going to shout. I don't care what anybody says about me. I'm going to let it rip. And I'm going to say, Lord, you'll have to forgive me. I might be a little too emotional. And he's going to present us. You know, I've seen grooms many times when I've married them. I've seen them surprise their brides with gifts. But the surprise that he has for you and me is nearly more than the human mind can comprehend. He's going to say, this is yours. The holy city, New Jerusalem, is yours. Everything that I am, everything that I have, is yours for all eternity. It won't depend upon any of my faithfulness. It won't depend upon anything then. It'll just depend upon my relationship to him. He's my Lord and my Savior. What is heaven 
what is our heavenly home going to be like? Well, it won't be like a lot of the superstition that I've read to you. It's going to be like a garden. It's going to be like a city. It's going to be, we're going to be made part of the household of God. And it's going to be the bridegroom's gift to the bride. Folk, this is what grace is. That's why we talk about amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And again, I say the matured mind looks towards heaven and thinks in his mind, oh, thank God, I shall have a spotless moral and spiritual character. I'll be able to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'll be in heaven for all eternity. We're going to be the bride. We thank you for listening to the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time for the Making Much of Jesus podcast.